It's the other side of midnight with Frank Morano. Well, it's always a glorious day uh, when I get to talk with Colonel Daniel Davis. Unfortunately, uh, so often we end up uh, talking about uh, things that are just uh, awful. And, uh, you know, he's not somebody that I generally call upon to talk about how nice the weather is or uh, how everybody's getting a 20% raise this year. He is uh, an incredible man, a real warrior and a real scholar. Not only is he a retired U.S. Army colonel who's been deployed in four combat zones, not only is he a brilliant man who's a senior fellow and a military expert with defense priorities, he's now hosting a terrific show on the internet called Deep Dive. You could get a look at it on the YouTube, but he's also an author. He wrote a terrific book called 11th Hour in 2020 America, how America's foreign policy got jacked up and how the next administration can fix it. I've read the book and I have to tell you, even though it's three or four years later, the book is more timely now than ever. And if unfortunately America would have heeded some of the warnings that Colonel Daniel Davis laid out four years ago. I think there's a good chance not only would America be more secure, the world might actually be more secure. It is always great to welcome back to the program Colonel Daniel Davis. Colonel, appreciate the opportunity to chat. Frank, it's a pleasure to be back. It's been too long. Absolutely. It absolutely has. Uh, Obviously, Colonel, all eyes are on the Middle East. Uh, There are so many different aspects of this to dissect. Let me begin by asking about something that I feel like we heard a great deal about right after October 7th, but in the last three or four weeks, we haven't heard as much about, and that's the intelligence failures that led to this horrible Hamas attack on Israel. I was always under the impression that Israel, with the Mossad and with the Shin Bet, and with the incredible alliance that the uh, Israelis have with the United States intelligence apparatus, they had among the most sophisticated intelligence operations in the world. How is there an intelligence failure of this magnitude that leads to an attack like this, Colonel? Yeah, I think that there's two things that are simultaneously working against Israel in this. Number one, uh, from the Israeli side, was frankly arrogance. Uh, they they believed that they were they believed all the the press that you just mentioned there that they were the best in the world, the Shin Bet, the Mossad. Uh, you know, they got a long history of having great intelligence. They have the top of the line in uh, technology with it, with sensors, with, with camera systems, with uh, uh, electronic intelligence, human intelligence, just, you know, sites on there. They really thought they had this figured out. And they also had a, a few of the Hamas fighters that they were backwards, that they were basically afraid uh, and that, that they could take care of anything. And so it was on a holiday and a Shabbat combination and they just didn't think anything was going to happen. That's one side of it. The second side was from the Hamas side. They have been paying a great deal of attention to how uh, Israel does its intelligence over this now is the fifth time they've actually had combat since 2007. You know, they've had various little wars of, of different sizes, and they have been paying a great deal of attention to how Israel operates. They knew some of the radio communications that were uh, uh, compromised. So they knew that Israel would be listening to this and they spent months feeding them intentional misinformation so that basically telling Israel what they wanted to hear was that the Hamas was afraid to try anything, that they would not risk a, an open conflict with Israel. And so it lulled them to sleep. Meanwhile, 
they were the Hamas side was actually preparing and training out in the open for months heading into this, and then only now do they realize what they were doing. They just thought it was either oh, just doing stuff inside the Gaza Strip just to keep fit or whatever. Well, it turns out they were doing very deliberate practice and training and preparation for this, uh, and, and then it just exploded in their face, in Israel's face on that. And, and uh, you know, now they're trying to recover from it. But that, I think, is the, is the core reason why they had the problem on October 7th. The uh, front page of the Sunday New York Times had a very interesting headline, kind of a provocative question, and I'm going to ask you to do your best to answer it. The The headline in the Times was, is Israel's strategy to eradicate Hamas working? What do you think? Is it working? No, it, it's not. I mean, you, you can't. I mean, that, that's been one of my bigger frustrations here is that Israel understandably was extraordinarily angry after October 7th, and for justifiable reasons because of the the heinous the nature of many of these terrorist attacks and, and how they were expressly going after uh, civilians and how they were barbarous, you know, just terrible things were done to the civilian population more than just killing them. So it's understandable. But the problem is you're now trying to set a, a military tactical objective that, in my view, can't be accomplished. Uh, Benjamin Netanyahu and many of his senior cabinet members have expressly said their objective is to destroy Hamas to bring peace to Israel. And this is not going to happen. The whole reason why the the Hamas rose in the first place was out of response to what had happened really since 2007. And and the fact that they have never been able to come to a two-state solution, Israel has never been able to give the Hamas side, or the Palestinian side rather, anything that they could, you know, have some hope that there would be a future for. Uh, And so it was just building up frustration and frustration and now, of course, you had this big war. Well, the, the result to try to physically destroy Hamas, Hamas is more an idea than it is a physical infrastructure. And now there's been a, an egregious number of Palestinian innocent civilians who were just as innocent as the Israeli civilians who were slaughtered. And there's now 13,000 of them or more. And uh, the majority of those are, are, are women and children and innocent people. And that is you can't kill that many people in the process of this and destroy entire sections of the city as they have. And, and then think that at the end of the day, that, that somehow that surviving population is going to be passive. The very things that led to the rise of Hamas have now been exacerbated. So Israel is not going to be safer at the end of this, because now then there's going to be I've seen this myself, uh, you know, in my times in both Iraq and Afghanistan, where we would go. And we would kill a lot of the Taliban members, a lot of the al-Qaeda members, and all it would do because of the, the, uh, the, the casualties that we inadvertently caused with some of the civilian population sometimes would create more Taliban than we ever killed. However many we killed in all those years, we always created more. And I can't imagine that something different is going to happen in the Gaza Strip. And I think that at the end of the day, uh, Israel is going to have created more enemies for themselves than they ever killed. Uh, we're talking with Colonel Daniel Davis. You could check out his show on uh, YouTube. It's called uh, Deep Dive with uh, Colonel Daniel Davis. Just search uh, Deep Dive Daniel Davis on YouTube. It comes right up. Uh, I've learned a lot by uh, by watching the show. There's great interviews on there, some great commentary on there as well. Colonel, as it stands now, uh, it's been reported even as of uh, this moment that negotiators are getting closer to an agreement with Hamas to release an initial 50 civilians 
in exchange for Israel allowing in more aid, including fuel, and uh, this would include a pause in fighting. And there's no firm deal in hand, but apparently there is a written draft agreement that's being passed between the Israelis, between Hamas, with the help of the United States and Qatar, who are doing what they can to try to broker this deal. Now, right after... October 7th, and not only the sheer number of innocent people that were killed, we heard a lot about the sheer brutality of Hamas. There were stories of uh, murdering uh, murdering babies and beheading babies. There were stories of uh, them uh, capturing elderly women. There were stories of uh, innocent people in their early 20s going to a rock concert who've never been soldiers in anything, being brutally murdered. And I think because of all these stories, a lot of us got the impression that Hamas was not an entity that could be negotiated with, that it was essentially nothing but a barbarous group of Nazi terrorists who are not only unreasonable, but you just can't reason with them. And that fit into what Netanyahu was saying, why they have to be eradicated. The two stories do not seem to jive with one another. From your perspective, is Hamas a bunch of Nazi terrorists who can't be negotiated with and have to be eradicated? Or are they rational enough to do these sort of mutually beneficial negotiated deals with the United States and with Israel? Well, I, I think that it's it's kind of a, a messy combination of both of those things, because it's Without question, Hamas made a calculation before they ever launched the, the first operation that they knew that their only hope was to, to expand the war and to bring some other Arabs in, whether that's Hezbollah, Iran, or some of these other uh, violent extremist groups against Israel. And, and I, it, it's really starting to look like it, if you can believe what's being said, and you know, there's various reasons to believe some of it at least – is that they were they felt that they were so hopeless that it would be better to try to do something like that and have the chance that most of them were killed and I think that they are genuinely prepared to die uh, that they want to try to to do this and if it doesn't work then I think that they know that that their chances were low but they were going to give it a shot but that still at the same time there's tactical reasons why they would want to. Uh, release some of these sausages because initially they were talking that they could literally release all of this is almost three weeks ago they could release all the non-military non-idf hostages that they had it was uh, somewhere around 120 140 of them something like that uh and then that kind of fell through but then now then they're saying all right now how about 50 let's let's go 50 and i think that probably the the very practical reason is hey let's get 50 we can buy ourselves Three or four days of, of, of a not a ceasefire, but at least a pause, a military pause, while we get these people out. That can, you know, just help them reinforce their positions, you know, and that kind of thing, and the militarily uh, to get them out there. And then I think that you'll probably see them in, at some point say, "All right, here's another twenty. We're being willed." So they're going to try to buy themselves time. Uh, and and look, from the Israeli perspective, you know, a lot of people I hear so many say, "No, no, no pauses, no ceasefires, no nothing." Uh, until they give all the hostages back. And, of course, that's not going to happen because then the Hamas side would basically be giving away all of their leverage. They want to do that. Now, I think Israel would be very wise to make every one of those deals that they can and get every single hostage back they could possibly get because ultimately it's not going to change the outcome. 
it may take a little bit longer, but that's inconsequential because they, Israel has the whole place surrounded already. There's unless Hezbollah comes in in the north, uh, there's not any help coming in for the the Hamas there. And even if Hezbollah does, Israel can still handle another or front. They're they're made for that. They're designed for that. But if you continue, if you ignore that and say no, we're going to keep fighting, then all you're going to end up doing is getting those hostages killed, and and that's not going to benefit anybody. I think they should get every hostage back they can, and just if there's a two or three day pause or delay. That's not going to change the outcome. It'll make it last longer, but you get people back alive. One of the things that uh, that we're seeing is Israel is also not only waging this battle in Gaza, they're trying to wage a PR battle internationally. I, I see uh, Benjamin Netanyahu on every network in prime time more than I see most prime time news anchors, and I'm not exaggerating at all. You were obviously very attuned to the lies that the U.S. government was telling about what was going on in Iraq and the progress about or lack thereof that was being made in Afghanistan. You first came on my radar screen by being willing to tell that story publicly, not only to the public, but to uh, to Congress. Israel has released several pieces of information that have been disputed, including claiming that an Arabic calendar was a shift schedule for Hamas kidnappers and using curtains as evidence that Hostage videos had been filmed at a hospital and the reaction internationally calling out what some people are claiming are questionable pieces of evidence. That is uh, something that Israel's opponents have used to weaken Israel's credibility. They're saying that this could even lead to a boy who cried wolf situation unless there's some concrete evidence for some of the claims that Israel's been making. One of the more bold claims that Israel's been making is that there was a Hamas command center beneath Gaza's Al-Shifa hospital, one of Israel's key contentions currently. There's obviously the Geneva Convention and the rules of war, and unless there are very specific conditions met, you're not supposed to invade hospitals. When the Russians were accused of bombing a maternity war internationally, everybody was calling the Russians out for doing this. From what you're seeing, Colonel, um, what do you make of the evidence that has been presented on the Al-Shifa issue? Uh, Was this a Hamas command center? Yeah, I I think you said it right there. That's, you know, it's alleged that this was the case. The problem is, uh, you know, when Israel first went in there and, and uh, started going into the Al-Shifa a few days back, four or five days ago, uh, you know, I was thinking already that it, it almost doesn't matter what happens there. They're going to present something that says they could do it. I can't even imagine the possibility that Israel would go in there. They would do this uh, floor by floor, room by room check and then come back and say, well, you know, as it turned out, we didn't find anything at all. We were wrong the whole time. There, there was zero chance of that in my view. So I knew that they would come out with something. Uh, what it's impossible to say from this side is, is that legit? Did they really have that? What they showed, is it genuine or was it, you know, generated or fabricated or was there some Hamas people in there, not a command center, but were there weapons in there? But almost certainly there were, but here's the problem. There's no independent confirmation of it. We're, we're told that we just have to take Israel's word for it. Now, of course, the Palestinian side is saying, this, you know, not only no, but hell no, that was all manufactured. There was none of that stuff we told you from the beginning. And Israel is saying the opposite. And, of course, each side 
has motivation to say that their side is right and the other side is wrong. What Israel could have done is to say, all right, we're going to bring an independent group in there, whether that's you know the International Red Crescent Red Cross, whether that's some UN, whether it's somebody from you know some independent country that's that's you know not aligned with either side. There's plenty of things they could have done that would have given that claim credibility, but they chose instead to say, no, nope, we're not going to let anybody else in. We're just going to tell you. And so the problem you have is that everybody who already likes Israel believes every word right. that the IDF said, right. and those who were against them doesn't believe a word of it. And so at the end of the day, you're in the same place you were before you started. Colonel, just so folks understand, I mentioned the U.S. role in trying to broker negotiations to get some of these hostages freed. I think a lot of people are aware of the American role in funding Israel, not only the uh, 3 to $4 billion that the U.S. government gives the Israelis annually, but now President Biden has asked for uh, another 12 to $14 billion. Other than that, other than the financial aspect of things and the hostage negotiation aspect of things, what is the U.S. role currently when it comes to this conflict? Well, I'll tell you, our, our interest, this number one interest, is to prevent this war from expanding beyond the Gaza Strip. That means trying to keep Hezbollah out of Lebanon from coming down to, the, to Israel, trying to keep it from expanding into Iran, and, and keeping the, you know, calm and throughout the Arab League. And you see that a uh, weekend or so ago, not this one, the previous weekend, there was uh, 57 countries and entities that came together uh, to, uh, almost unified against Israel. They need to keep that under control. Uh, Israel needs to do everything that it can to prevent and to stop the, the, the significant loss of Palestinian life, even if that means the operations have to take months longer, even if that was the case. They are better served to do that and to do everything they can to take care of the innocent civilians than to continue on with what they have been doing, which is almost disregard for the human life and say, nope, we're just going to keep doing our military operations until we have tactical success. Because as I point out, you're not going to have the, the you're not going to create peace by doing that. And you're going to ratchet up the chance that this thing does expand because you're going to lose support in the West if these numbers keep going up, and you're going to gain enemies in the Middle East if you keep doing that. From a military strategic perspective, one of the things that uh, has gotten a lot of attention, not just in this conflict, but previously, are these tunnels that Hamas uses, and uh, apparently they've been they've been years in the making, and there's a pretty sophisticated network of tunnels. How do you manage to combat Hamas when they have these tunnels to hide, to seek shelter? What does Israel do to kind of counter the tunnel aspect of things? Well, there's two separate things. What they've been doing is, number one, that they, they already had existing a, a suspected target list of where they think these tunnels have been uh, using all the different kinds of uh, uh, intelligence, whether that's signals intelligence, satellites, drones, sensing devices that they've had in human intelligence sources. So they had an idea. I think that they started off literally bombing everything they even suspected might be a tunnel. And they've continued to search and they're, you know, they have almost this constellation of drones and satellites above watching everything that moves down there. So if they ever see anybody come out of a tunnel, then that becomes a quick target. That's one thing. Uh, but the, that that can only get you so far because a lot of them, you're just not going to find it unless you go out and, and hunt for them. And the only way you can do that is to go building by building, searching for those tunnels, and then sometimes you even have to go in them. And that is a really, really painful, slow, and bloody thing to do. 
but there's just almost no other way because if you get going too much, too fast in a hurry, and you you just try to go quickly to take certain areas, and then all of a sudden you you have some of these tunnel entrances that they pop up behind you and they get into areas you think are secure, and then you're going to suffer casualties. And and uh, it's it's just uh, an ugly, horrible way to fight a war. Uh, but that's just what they have, and they're going to have to nav- navigate that. One of the recent videos that you did, and again, I want to encourage people to check out your YouTube channel. People can just search Deep Dive with Daniel Davis. It had sort of a, a provocative title, and you answered the question in the in the title. The The question and the title of the video was, Can Israel Kill Its Way to Peace? Now, some people are going to hear that and bristle that you're even phrasing a question that way. They're going to say, look, Israel didn't ask for this. Israel was sitting there minding their own business, dealing with um, almost daily rocket attacks that were being repelled by the Iron Dome, and they didn't ask for more than a 1,000 innocent people to be murdered by Hamas terrorists. So a lot of people are going to take issue with the kind of phraseology of that question. They're not trying to kill their way to peace. They're going to say, well, they're responding to a legitimate terrorist threat. Uh, so two-part question. One, tell me why you phrase the question that way. And two, answer the question for me. Can Israel kill its way to peace? Right, yeah, absolutely. It, it, look, it, it, without question, and I've never said anything except for the full-throated support for Israel to respond to the terrorist attacks on 7 October, blanket, point blank, no, no caveats, no nothing. Where I do have significant issue and where I'm saying for Israel's own good, they can't go this way. When you just say, I'm just going to go after every military target, and I don't care how many people are in the way. I, I told them to leave. If they don't leave, that's on them. You can't do that you, because you can't say, I'm going to kill tens of thousands of Palestinian innocent civilians because these Hamas terrorists killed 1,000 of ours. That's, that's just – you can't justify one killing of innocent civilians by based on another. I, because, listen, I've done it this way. I've been in, in these kinds of situations. I've fought in them, and I know how careful that we were in to try to, to avoid civilian casualties. And, and there's many times we failed, and there's many times where there was just collateral damage. And, you know, even the best targeted opportunities still ended up killing innocent people. I've seen it when we made mistakes and we hit the wrong target, et cetera. So I know what has happened there. But what it appears, at least from the outside, I'll admit that, is that Israel is not taking any kind of precautions. If they think there's a target there, they're going after it. It doesn't matter what the casualties are. That is going to harm Israel because they're trying to kill their way, kill all the Hamas, because that's what both uh, the the defense minister, Gallant, Prime Minister Netanyahu, they are saying that their objective is to destroy Hamas so that they don't have any military ability left. They're doing that by wanting to kill them all. There's like 30,000 or so reportedly. Uh, maybe more. And I'm just telling you, you can't do that because you can't kill enough of them. And because here's what I saw in Afghanistan, and and we're seeing it play out here. You go in there and to try to take out these Taliban leaders, you go in there to try to take out these Al-Qaeda leaders, and you end up killing innocent civilians in the process. Now that you've just forever, one of the actual Taliban you took out, you've now created four or five more enemies. They're doing the same thing here, but on an industrial scale. When you take out an entire apartment complex, like just happened a couple of days ago, and, and a, a couple hundred people are killed or wounded, 
I mean, what do they think is going to happen to the surviving family members of those people? They're going to say, I don't have any reason to, to withhold now. Even if I hated Hamas before, and most of them did, I'm going to have to join them now because otherwise, uh, you know, we're, we're just all going to get slaughtered. So if you try to kill your way out of this, all you're going to do is create more enemies inside the Gaza Strip and in the Arab world, and you risk losing support from the West. And without that, you can't keep prosecuting this war. I have pages worth of questions uh, for you that I could keep you for three hours, but I am going to let you get some sleep. But there's two questions that I'm going to I'm going to hopefully get a quick response from you on. One is in the last four weeks, we've heard from a number of people Lindsey Graham, Nikki Haley, Joe Lieberman, Alan Dershowitz, suggesting that we, the United States, needs to, in the aftermath of this, actually carry out some sort of limited military action on Iran. Uh, They believe Iran is uh, responsible for Hamas doing this, either uh, directly or indirectly, and that we need to do something to take out Iran and their military infrastructure. Is that a good idea as far as you're concerned? It is a terrible idea. And, and, And look, first and foremost, that's not what the American military is to do. We, our purpose is not to go kill somebody because we don't like what they're doing to somebody that we care about. We have an alliance systems and, and we have a, you know mutual defense treaties like the Article 5 in NATO, for example, an attack on one is an attack on all. We don't have that kind of relationship with, with Israel. There is no requirement that we go and fight wars for them. They have the ability to defend themselves. That's the reason we spend $3.8 billion per year to help them build their own national defense capacity to defend themselves. They can do it. They have succeeded, and they have that capacity. They fought a war in 1967, 1973, without any external help, and they succeeded. Now they're even more powerful. That's not our job, because you go and do that, then you're almost guaranteeing that you're going to expand this war, that you're going to get more Americans killed and possibly draw us into a war against Iran. And I assure you that there is a lot of things that Iran can do if we attack them that they won't do if we don't initiate an attack like that. It is not in American interest to expand this war, especially if it's a choice we make out of this arrogant belief that we can launch these missile attacks and strike into Israel, into Iran itself, and to not have any response. That's the height of arrogance, and that's the bigger chance that we're going to get sucked into a war of our own choosing, and we cannot do that. Colonel, I'm out of time. We're going to have to end it there. you got to come back so uh, I can make some more progress on a lot of these other questions I have for you. Thank you so much. It's always a treat to talk with you. I wish it wasn't always under such dour circumstances. (laughs) I know. Thanks a lot for having me. I appreciate the opportunity to come on your show. I really do. Thank you. Colonel Daniel Davis. Check him out. Deep Dive on YouTube. The book is 11th Hour available on Amazon, a bunch of other places. You want to comment? You certainly can. 800 848 9222. 800 848 9222. Straight ahead. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10 year, 100,000 mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details.